Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Sorry to uh, drop in on you like this, Miss Lane, but I've been thinking, you know, there must be a lot of questions about me that people in the world would like to know the answer. Of course, yes. Uh... Uh, you really shouldn't smoke, you know, Miss Lane. Don't tell me, lung cancer, right? Well... Not yet, thank goodness. Um, um, would you like a glass of wine? Uh, no, no thanks. I never drink when I fly. Nice place. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, should we get started with the interview? Oh, thank you. Well, uh, let's start with your vital statistics. Are you married? <laughs> uh, no. No, I'm not. Do you have a girlfriend? Uh, no, I don't, but uh, if I did, Miss Lane, you'd be the first to know about it. Um, how old are you? Over 21. Oh, I get it. You don't want anyone to know how old. Okay. And how big are you? How tall are you? In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Emma and welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 152, Superman. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. Huge welcome back to everyone listening to this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to all brand new listeners to this podcast. Welcome back, regular returning listeners. Thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing this podcast. No matter how you found this podcast, I'm so grateful that you have found this podcast because today I'm going to be talking about the history and legacy of Superman. And wow, there is so much to talk about with Superman. Before I do, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who listened to the previous episodes on A Scanner Darkly and Jason and the Argonauts. Jason and the Argonauts started My Heroes Through the Decades miniseries, which I'm obviously going to be continuing with Superman because we're going from the 60s and we're going into the 70s. And Superman is a really fascinating movie just generally 
But it also is quite interesting because this is arguably the movie that started the zeitgeist and the public's fascination with superhero cinema and what you could achieve seeing superheroes on screen. Because while Harryhausen made us all believe in monsters, Superman made us believe a man could fly. And honestly, this movie is still so awe-inspiring over 40 years later. And basically, strap in for this one, because for this particular flight, we're going to go all the way around the world several times. There's also going to be a little bit of going back in time as well. Unfortunately, I don't quite have the power to reverse time and make stuff not happen. And why would I want to? Because that would mean that this podcast didn't exist. And who wants that? But I think this is going to be quite a lengthy episode. In fact, I can guarantee it's going to be a very lengthy episode because I have more notes on this movie than I've had for any movie since maybe the episode that I did on Alien. And Alien was over an hour in length. So I fully expect this episode to be an hour plus, even though I haven't recorded it yet, but I'm pretty certain it's going to be an hour plus. So let's just jump straight in. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's the trailer for Superman. My friends, I'm not given to wild, unsupported statements. And I tell you that we must evacuate this planet immediately. Jor-El, be reasonable. Once there was a civilization much like ours, but with a greater intelligence, greater powers, and a greater capacity for good. was destroyed. But there was one survivor. Now, wouldn't that beat all get out? Because of the wisdom and compassion of Jor-El, because he knew the human race had the capacity for goodness, he sent us his only son. His name is Kal-El. He will call himself Clark Kent. But the world will know him as Superman. This year, Superman brings you the gift of flight. Superman, the movie.
Evacuated from the planet Krypton as a baby, young Kal-El is saved by his parents and sent to Earth, where he's found and raised by Jonathan and Martha Kent. Named Clark, the young man grows up with extraordinary power, but learns humility from his adoptive parents before travelling to find out who he is. He becomes a friend, helping humanity, saving the life of his work colleague Lois Lane and rescuing cats from trees. After he and Lois spend an evening together chatting and flying around the world, she writes an exclusive interview and calls him Superman. But the nefarious Lex Luthor sees him as the ultimate threat and uses the information in the interview to try and defeat him. As always, let's go through the cast of this movie. We have Marlon Brando as Jor-El, Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor, Christopher Reeve as Clark Kent, a.k.a. Carlel, a.k.a. Superman, Ned Beatty as Otis, Jackie Cooper as Perry White, Glenn Ford as Jonathan Kent, Phyllis Thaxter as Martha Kent, Jeff East as Teenage Clark Kent, Margot Kidder as Lois Lane, Trevor Howard as the First Elder, Susanna York as Lara, Jack O'Halloran as Non, Valerie Perrine as Eve Teschmarker, Terence Stamp as General Zod, Mark McClure as Jimmy Olsen and Sarah Douglas as Ursa. And Kirk Allen and Noel Neal, the stars of the 1948 serial, which I'm going to come to in a little bit, cameo in a deleted scene as Lois Lane's parents. Superman has a screenplay by Mario Puzzo, David Newman, Leslie Newman and Robert Benton, is directed by Richard Donner and is based on Superman by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. And Superman, an iconic character if ever there was one, one of the first superheroes, an example of the archetypal superhero with a mild-mannered alter ego, virtually indestructible, and wears pants over his tights because if Robin Hood men in tights taught us anything, it's that real men wear tights. The character of Superman was created by writer Jerry Siegel and illustrator Joe Shuster and debuted in Action Comics No. 1, published in April 1938. But his origins were less super. In January 1933, Siegel, who wrote amateur science fiction stories in his self-published magazine, Science Fiction, The Advanced Guard, Future Civilization, published a short story in said magazine called The Reign of the Superman. The titular character wasn't Superman or Clark Kent or indeed Kal-El, but a bold, homeless man called Bill Dunn. Dunn is tricked by an evil scientist to take an experimental drug, which unbeknownst to Bill gives him powers of mind control and mind reading. Boosted by his sudden power, he uses these powers maliciously, and then the drug wears off and he's once again homeless and balding. A cautionary tale of not taking things for granted, maybe, but also don't take drugs, kids. That original idea had promised, though, and Siegel and Schuster moved into comic strips. But each time they approached a newspaper with their ideas, they were told they weren't outlandish enough, which caused Siegel to revisit Superman as a character and modify him to make him more sensational. This new, improved Superman is still given his powers by an evil scientist, but his powers are stronger and include superhuman strength and bulletproof skin. More importantly, though, rather than use his powers with malicious intent, this new Superman would only be a force for good. Inspired by Consolidated Book Publishers' proto-comic book, Detective Dan's Secret Operative, Siegel and Schuster put together their own comic book and called it The Superman. The Superman, though, didn't get picked up by Consolidated Book Publishers, nor indeed any publisher. Siegel believed it was because they were both unknowns and decided to replace Schuster as the artist and hire a bigger name. Schuster was, well, 
less than happy at the idea of being rejected by his longtime friend. So he burned the entire comic, except the front cover. With Schuster refusing to work with Siegel on Superman, Siegel shopped around for another artist, getting responses from Leo O'Melia and Russell Keaton, but neither artist's work went anywhere. In the meantime, Siegel was refining Superman's backstory, going from getting his powers from an evil scientist, to coming in a time machine from the future where humanity has evolved superpowers, to being sent back in time as a three-year-old from the future by his father, where the boy is found by Sam and Molly Kent, and eventually raised by them as their own son, naming him Clark Kent. Siegel and Schuster would go on to reconcile and together worked on further developing Superman. Together, they made him an alien from the planet Krypton, with Schuster designing his famous costume emblazoned with the S on the chest. Clark Kent was to be his secret identity, and they would also create the character of Lois Lane as a romantic foil for Superman and a platonic colleague for Clark. When they found work together in 1935 at National Allied Publications, a comic book publisher, they showed the owner, Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, their creation, Superman, and he asked them if he could publish the stories. But due to Wheeler Nicholson's erratic behaviour, as well as his lack of regular payments for their services, they declined. Siegel and Schuster would continue to work for Wheeler Nicholson, but not on Superman. In December 1937, Wheeler Nicholson would merge with Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz and form Detective Comics Incorporated. Due to Wheeler Nicholson's continued debt, Donenfeld and Leibowitz would seize Wheeler Nicholson's portion of the company and petition him into bankruptcy. There is a point to this story, I promise. With Wheeler Nicholson out of the picture, Leibowitz asked Siegel to produce some comic material for a new upcoming anthology magazine called Action Comics. Siegel pitched several ideas, but not Superman, because he and Schuster were negotiating a deal with McClure Newspaper Syndicate for Superman. But when McClure turned down Superman, Leibowitz was impressed by the character and commissioned Siegel and Schuster for 13 pages of Superman in Action Comics number one. Siegel and Schuster signed a contract with Leibowitz in March 1938 to publish Superman, being paid $10 per page, and the contract would, most importantly, give away the copyrights to Superman to Detective Comics prior to Superman's first publication in April 1938. The money they received was just for those 13 pages of initial printed work. The copyrights to the character they ended up giving away for free. This they would end up seriously regretting as the character became hugely popular and profitable for DC, as Detective Comics would become. Siegel and Schuster would sue DC Comics in 1947 for the rights to Superman and Superboy, based on an old script by Siegel. The judge would rule in favour of DC owning Superman and Siegel owning Superboy, and the case was settled out of court with DC paying Siegel and Schuster $93,000, that's equivalent to over $1 million today, in exchange for the full rights for both Superman and Superboy, and then DC fired both of them. Siegel was rehired in 1957, and Siegel and Schuster unsuccessfully tried to regain the rights to Superman again in 1965, which they also lost, as well as the subsequent appeal. DC Comics fired Siegel again, because of course they would. In 1965, Siegel launched a publicity campaign in which Schuster participated, protesting DC's treatment of them both. With Superman the movie, which I'm going to come to, coming out very shortly after that, Warner would reinstate their comic byline and grant them both a lifetime pension of $20,000 plus benefits. Siegel and Schuster never gave up, lobbying for their rights to the character, and after their deaths in 1996 and 1992 respectively, 
their heirs were paid several million dollars plus yearly stipends in exchange to permanently grant DC the rights to Superman. It's not the end of the story, as Siegel's heirs struck a deal with movie producer Mark Toberoff, who would help them regain the rights in exchange for signing those rights over to his production company. The judge in this case sided with the heirs of Siegel's estate. DC appealed. DC won their appeal. Schuster's heirs were sued by DC in 2010 for serving a termination notice on their grant, which the court also ruled in DC's favour. Anyway, I digress. It's just an interesting bit of information to know about Superman. DC really, really loved the character, and he makes them a lot of money. So, of course, they wanted to keep him around, and they wanted to capitalise on the audience reading those comic books. Superman has remained in regular publication since 1938. He was the biggest-selling comic book character in the 60s and 70s, and sales would rise in 1987. During the period of 1941 to 1970, Mort Weisinger was the editor of the comics, and he would create a standard mythology for Superman, ensuring careful planning of storylines and building a complex universe of people and places unique to Superman. Unlike Marvel, he didn't want to reference or build off real-life issues or situations, such as civil rights or the Vietnam War. Weisinger retired in 1970 and was replaced by Julius Schwartz, who would scale down Superman's powers and include more drama into the stories. Schwartz retired in 1986, coinciding with the release of Crisis on Infinite Earths, a huge company-wide crossover event, and was succeeded by Mike Carlin, who overlooked more changes to Superman, including another reduction of Superman's powers, because Superman is often seen as, well, a little bit dull due to his immense power. At the same time all of this change was going on in the comics, Superman was also debuting on radio, on stage, on TV and on film. Between 1940 to 1951, there was a radio show called The Adventures of Superman, with Superman voiced by Bud Collier. A series of 17 theatrical animated shorts, also starring Bud Collier as the voice of Superman, were released between 1941 to 1943. The first live-action adaptation was a 1948 serial starring Kirk Allen and Noel Neal as Superman and Lois Lane, followed by a sequel, Atom Man vs Superman, in 1950. Scenes of the character flying would be animated and linked to live-action footage. The first feature film was Superman and the Mole Men in 1951, starring George Reeves, which preceded Adventures of Superman, a television series which aired from 1952 to 1958, also starring George Reeves. No, he is no relation to Keanu, I have checked. While animated versions of Superman were still prevalent on TV between 1966 to 1970, a live-action Superman stayed dormant after Adventures of Superman finished in 1958. Meanwhile, the Salkind family had been producing movies since the early 1920s, with Mikhail Salkind working with Greta Garbo. His son Alexander joined the family's film production business in the 1940s, and Alexander's son Ilya joined the family business in the 1970s. All three generations of Salkinds produced The Three Musketeers in 1973, and filmed that and its sequel, The Four Musketeers, back-to-back, -back, along with director Richard Lester. Because this movie was originally going to be one huge movie, it caused a new Screen Actors Guild rule called the Salkind Clause that meant any actor must know how many movies they're making when they sign up, and they must be paid for the amount of movies they're making. The Salkinds attempt to only pay once for two movies backfired ever so slightly. The Salkind production team was joined by Ilya's childhood friend Pierre Spengler, but in between the release of The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers, 
Patriarch Mikhail Salkin died. This meant Ilya Salkin taking his grandfather's place as creative producer in 1973. And with that came a raft of ideas. It was a poster of a French version of Zorro that kicked off the idea to make a movie about a costumed hero, but with an American audience in mind. Ilya suggested Superman, but his father Alexander hadn't heard of him being born and grown up in Europe, but he was eventually persuaded by his optimistic son. Their producing partner Pierre Spengler was more pessimistic. He didn't think that they could convincingly make a superhero movie with a character flying, but the Sulkins persisted and the next hurdle was acquiring the rights. To do so, they'd have to go to National Periodical Publications, the predecessor to DC Comics, as they didn't become DC until 1977. They'd been bought by Warner Brothers in 1972, but the Sulkins would start their negotiations with Bernie Kasdan at DC, who suggested a multitude of rules and controls on what and how they could depict the character in a live-action movie. A movie with all these restrictions would have been impossible to make, and so they bypassed DC and went straight to Warner Brothers and did the deal directly with the head of publishing. The contract gave the Sulkins rights to produce movies and TV shows featuring Superman for 25 years. This was in 1974. And you might ask, why were Warner Brothers so quick to sign the rights to Superman over? And the answer was Batman. The Batman TV show, with its campy humour and cartoonish qualities, had somewhat tainted the value of superhero adaptations in the eyes of Warner Brothers. So the Sulkins were free to do with Superman as they wished, as long as they fully financed the movie, they gave Warner Brothers first refusal on distribution, and they involved DC in the production. With the rights secured, writer of The Godfather, Mario Puzzo, was hired to write the screenplays for both Superman and Superman 2 together as one 500-plus page script and was paid $600,000 to do so. As Puzzo wrote, the hunt for director started in earnest. They approached Francis Ford Coppola, William Friedkin, Peter Yates, but the one agent who kept calling them was Steven Spielberg's. Spielberg was, at the time, busy working on Jaws. That's episode 106 of this podcast, by the way. And because he was over budget on Jaws, the elder Salkind wasn't keen on Spielberg. Spielberg was a huge Superman fan and desperately wanted to direct this movie. But although Elia thought Jaws would be a huge movie, Alexander's lack of confidence meant them passing on Spielberg. Once Jaws was out and was a huge hit in 1975, the Sulkins contacted Spielberg's agent and basically offered him Superman, but by that point, the window of opportunity had passed. They eventually settled on Guy Hamilton, director of Goldfinger, and the production moved from France to Italy and spent about $2 million doing flying tests at Cinecita Studios in Rome to try and crack how to convincingly make a man fly. They then hired two of the biggest actors in the world, Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman to star in their Superman movie, neither of which to play Superman. Marlon Brando alone was paid $3.7 million and 11.75% of the film's profits. He would end up receiving $19 million for his comparatively few minutes of screen time, with Hackman receiving $2 million. A huge advertising campaign was started featuring both Brando and Hackman Robert Benton and David Newman were hired for rewrite work on Puzo's script. When Benton became too busy directing The Late Show, David's wife Leslie was brought in to help her husband finish writing duties, along with some additional work by George MacDonald Frazier. They were also trying to find their Superman, but the search had proven fruitless up to that point. 
Early screen tests with Caitlyn Jenner had led them to considering other options. They wanted an A-list actor for the role, but there was another issue. They had most of the primary cast and crew, but Marlon Brando couldn't film in Italy because of an obscenity lawsuit over his role in Last Tango in Paris. The plan was to move the production to the UK instead to accommodate their first build star, but Guy Hamilton was a tax exile from the UK, and therefore the director couldn't work in the UK either. Hamilton would end up parting ways with the production with no ill will on either side. Once the production settled at Shepperton Studios, the search was back on for both the director and a Superman. Mark Robson, who had directed Earthquake in 1974, was very keen for the job of director, and Ilya Salkin's wife also suggested Richard Donner, the director of The Omen. Eventually, the decision was whether to choose Robson or Donner. Warner Brothers remained on the fence and left the decision to the Salkins, who chose Donner to direct both Superman and Superman 2. Gonna come back to Superman 2 in a little bit. Meanwhile, Mario Puzzo had delivered his 550-page mammoth script and Richard Donner, who was by that point the new director, was not impressed with it. He thought it was too campy and basically decided to start again with the production completely from scratch. He hired Tom Mankiewicz to rewrite Puzzo's script. Despite Mankiewicz's changes to the script, which were extensive, the Writers Guild of America refused to credit him for the work. Donner would end up giving him a creative consultant credit instead. Meanwhile, the search for Superman continued, with big names like Arnold Schwarzenegger and David Prowse lobbying for the role, but the producers weren't interested in either the Austrian Oak or Darth Vader. Patrick Wayne would be cast, but would drop out when his father John Wayne was diagnosed with stomach cancer. And here's a brief list of some of the actors considered for this prestigious role. James Kahn, James Brolin, Christopher Walken, Nick Nolte, John Voigt, Chris Christopherson, Steve McQueen, Burt Reynolds and Charles Bronson were all considered. Warren Beatty was offered the role of Superman but turned it down. Paul Newman was offered the role of Superman but also turned it down. Robert Redford was offered the role of Superman and again turned it down. When they couldn't find a famous actor, they went ahead and they auditioned 200 unknown actors. Casting director Lynn Stalmaster, which, just put a pin in here, like last episode on Jason and the Argonauts, with Beverly and Jan, Lynn is also not a woman. Lynn Stalmaster suggested a young man that he'd found, a young man called Christopher Reeve, but he was dismissed as being too young and too skinny for the role. Even singer Neil Diamond wanted this role. And it really feels like the actors who wanted the role weren't good enough, and the actors the producers wanted for the role just didn't want it. Tom Mankiewicz would go on to say, We found guys with fabulous physiques who couldn't act or wonderful actors who did not look remotely like Superman. How hard could it be to cast Superman? Lynn Stalmaster stood fast on his decision to cast Christopher Reeve and kept bringing him up to the Salkins and to Richard Donner. Reeve screen tested in February 1977 and they were stunned by him and how great he was. He didn't have the physique and so they suggested he wear a muscle suit. Reeve declined and instead started a strict diet and exercise regime to bulk up he would train under David Prowse, who obviously did not get the role of Superman, and would go from 188 to 212 pounds during pre-production and filming. They had finally found their Superman and what a Superman Christopher Reeve was. To many, he's still the definitive Superman. And honestly, watching him in this role, he's staggering. He's amazing. And 
I know many make light of the fact that Lois doesn't see Clark as Superman, but watching him in this dual role, you can kind of get why. Because his posture is different, his mannerisms are different. And let's be honest, <laughs> this is one of my biggest bugbears about this movie. Lois is a journalist who can't spell. But I think I would be under the thrall of Superman too. And I'm going to come to why I think this movie works a bit later. But this movie works for so many reasons, but mainly due to Christopher Reeve and his sweet, honest, down-to-earth portrayal. He was never a fan of the comics, but he had watched George Reeves in Adventures of Superman. He ended up basing his portrayal of Clark Kent on Cary Grant in his role in Bring It Up Baby. Margot Kidder would fly to London to audition for Lois Lane and trip up on her way to the audition room, which endeared her to Richard Donner, and he went on to cast her in the role of Lois Lane. Filming started in March 1977 at Pinewood Studios and finished 19 months later in October 1978. The reason for the lengthy shoot was the simultaneous filming of both Superman and Superman 2, which was highly ambitious of the Sulkins since no one could predict whether Superman would actually be a success and warrant a sequel. The Fortress of Solitude was constructed at Shepperton Studios and was a huge practical set. Scenes at the Daily Planet were shot at Pinewood. Exterior filming took place in New York, doubling for Metropolis. During the New York City blackout of 1977, Alberta, Canada stood in for small town Smallville because of various production problems, time and budget constraints and, shall we say, personality clashes. Tensions started showing in the relationship between Richard Donner and the Salkins and Spengler. Richard Lester was brought in as a temporary co-producer to mediate and would end up offering Richard Donner advice and assistance, but would go uncredited for his work on Superman. Because of the issues, it was decided to halt production of Superman 2 and focus solely on Superman. Superman 2 was, at that point, reportedly 75% complete. Superman 2 would end up being directed by Richard Lester rather than Richard Donner. And really, that's for an episode on Superman 2. However, I can't guarantee there actually will be one. So let me just say that after Superman's release, Richard Donner was fired and effectively replaced as director of Superman 2 with Richard Lester. Lester would reshoot most of the film and Superman 2, the Richard Donner cut, would be released containing Donner's material in 2006 on home media. This version had additional scenes to fill in for the 25% of work that Richard Donner never completed. This version was also dedicated to the memory of Christopher Reeve. But the question everyone kept coming back to on this production of Superman was how to convincingly make it look like a man could fly. Pulp serials of the 20s and 30s had guys flying by zip wire. It was taking those B-movie serials and turning them into big-budget blockbusters. It was Zoran Perisic who came up with the front projection technique used on Superman's flying sequences. While front projection was invented in 1955 by Will Jenkins, it was Perisic who patented a new refinement to front projection that involved placing a zoom lens on both the movie camera and the projector. These zoom lenses are synchronised to zoom in and out simultaneously in the same direction. As the production lens zooms in, it projects a smaller image on the screen. The camera lens zooms in at the same time and to the same degree, so that the projected image, the background plate, appears unchanged as seen through the camera. However, the subject placed in front of the front projection screen appears to have moved closer to the camera. Thus, Superman flies towards the camera. Perisic christened this technique Zoptic. For landings and takeoffs, wire rigging was used, suspended from tower cranes on location or suspended from the ceiling in studio. 
Christopher Reeve did most of his own stunts and was often suspended 50 foot in the air. Wires would be rotoscoped out of shots. Blue screen matte techniques were used with Reeve suspended stationary against the screen. He would bang his body to look like he was moving and his cape would flap with the use of a special cape flapping device. I don't know what that's called, but let's just call it a cape flapping device. But otherwise, he was stationary and the camera would dolly in and out and zoom in and out to appear to show flying in motion. The blue background was then removed and replaced with a background plate shot. Superman's suit was originally a much darker blue, but it made it transparent against the blue screen, so it was made a lighter blue. While most would say that these effects look archaic, I still think that they look magical today. They also used a lot of scale models for the big set pieces like the Golden Gate Bridge and the Hoover Dam and matte paintings as backdrops in the Fortress of Solitude. Roy Field, the film's optical supervisor, said, There were many techniques used to make Superman fly, but the best special effect of all was Christopher Reeve himself. Superman is unlike many movies in that its typical three-act structure comprises of three portions of his life, split into his locations and its portrayals of the character. The first, set on Krypton, shows Kal-El as a baby and the Kryptonian response to a world-ending event. The second shows Kal-El landing on Earth, becoming Clark Kent, being raised by the Kents and growing into a young man in small-town America, literal Smallville, choosing to follow his destiny by going to the Fortress of Solitude after Jonathan Kent's death. The third is Clark Kent, firstly at the Fortress of Solitude and then in Metropolis, finally becoming Superman. As a movie, it fulfills a dual role of instilling Superman as a paragon of virtue, of truth, justice and the American way, but also slyly highlighting the truth isn't the whole truth. Superman himself claims to never lie, but in living a dual life of Clark and Superman, he's telling the biggest lie of all. While many claim that Superman is a boring character, I actually think this movie presents him as quite interesting in how easy it is for him to lie. He goes to tell Lois the truth and changes his mind at the last minute. He also acts selfishly in choosing to turn back time to save Lois, showing that he is ultimately more Clark Kent than he is Kal-El. Maybe you could say more human than he is Kryptonian. And I really like that glimpse into the psyche of the superhero, the morality of being a hero and what being a hero means and how it differs to being a Kryptonian and being a human. He's this being of immense power and yet all he wants is a life with Lois. How very human of him. And much of that humanity comes from Christopher Reeve, who's sweet and earnest and vulnerable and humble but also powerful and masculine. And honestly, I can't stress this enough, Christopher Reeve is perfect casting. He understood that the difference between Clark and Superman wasn't just a pair of glasses, but an entire character, personality, stature. And ultimately, it was never him playing Clark and Superman, but him playing Superman and Superman playing Clark. And there are plenty of biblical similarities to these stories as well, if you watch something like The Prince of Egypt, which I've also done an episode on as well, The Prince of Egypt is about Moses and you'll see distinct similar story beats from being sent away to be saved by his parents, to being found by another family, to finding out he has special abilities, to finding out his father was literally from another realm. Superman's creators were Jewish and I'm not a religious scholar or anything so I tend to leave religion out of most of these discussions but the theology behind Christianity and Judaism often tends to overlap when it comes to biblical stories. So it's quite possible that both religions play a part in the creation and evolution of Superman. And when Lois Lane interviews a friend, she says, 
what a superman. And when I think of what a superman, I often think of Keanu Reeves. And so this is my terrible segue into my obligatory Keanu reference for this episode, which is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And you might ask, why? Why would I link Keanu Reeves to Superman? And I would say, well, why would I not? Because he is a Superman. Also, Keanu Reeves does have the same surname as an actual Superman, which is also pretty super. Keanu is also going to be starring alongside Superman in DC League of Super Pets. But I have this rule where I can't use the same obligatory Keanu reference twice. So I'm not really going to go into that one because I think I might want to save that one maybe for the next episode. Hmm. Let's move on to the music. And the score for Superman was originally set to be recorded by the brilliant late Jerry Goldsmith, who obviously did The Mummy. The Mummy is the greatest movie ever made. And he would drop out due to scheduling conflicts. Not with The Mummy, though. That came much later. He would be replaced by the iconic John Williams, whose Superman theme is considered as iconic as the scores that he's done for Jaws, Star Wars, Jurassic Park and Indiana Jones. Margot Kidder was supposed to sing Can You Read My Mind, which was written by Leslie Bracuse, but Donna disliked it and changed it to a composition accompanied by a voiceover when Lois Lane and Superman are flying together. It was recorded and released as a song, though, in 1979 by Maureen McGovern. Superman was originally planned to be released on the 40th anniversary of Action Comics 1 in 1978. It was postponed for six months due to its production issues and ended up premiering on the 10th of December 1978 in Washington, D.C. and premiering here in the U.K. in Leicester Square at the Empire on the 13th of December 1978 with the Queen in attendance. This was before wide releases in the U.S. on the 15th of December and here in the U.K. one day earlier on the 14th of December. In the US, it opened at number one at the box office where it stayed for two weeks, possibly longer, but I'll be honest, the records of Box Office Mojo don't really have anything after the second week. And when it comes to financials, there's no beating about the bush. Superman was the highest grossing movie of 1978 in the US. It became the sixth highest grossing movie of all time up to that point. Including re-releases, it went on to gross $134.5 million in the United States and Canada and $166 million internationally, totaling $300.5 million worldwide. Adjusted for inflation, it's still the highest grossing Superman movie in the US at $558.6 million. That is higher than Batman v Superman and Justice League. It'd go on to cost $55 million, but became a much bigger success than anyone, DC, Warner Brothers, all the Salkins could have ever expected. Well, Except maybe Ilya Salkind, who obviously knew that there was potential with Superman. It's also the most critically well-received Superman movie and is widely seen as one of the best films of 1978. And of the fledgling superhero genre, it received universal acclaim with a 94% of Rotten Tomatoes, a full 4 out of 4 stars by Roger Ebert, only 3 out of 4 from Gene Siskel though. Superman was nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Film Editing, Best Original Score and Best Sound, and received a Special Achievement Academy Award for its visual effects. At the 32nd British Academy Film Awards, it won the inaugural Outstanding British Contribution to Cinema Award for its visual effects. Christopher Reeve won Most Promising Newcomer to Leading Film Roles, and it was additionally nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Gene Hackman, Best Cinematography, Best Production Design and Best Sound. 
John Williams' score was also nominated for a Golden Globe. We need to talk about sequels though, don't we really? I've mentioned Superman 2 already because I feel like you can't not mention Superman 2 when you're talking about Superman because they were, for the majority, filmed together, although the Superman 2 that we got was not the Superman 2 of Richard Donner. So Superman 2 came out in 1980, Superman 3 in 1983, and Superman 4, The Quest for Peace in 1987. Superman 5 was going to be made, but it ended up not materialising due to canon owning the rights and canon then going bust. Superman Reborn was a 1995 script which Kevin Smith would rewrite that went nowhere either. There was also the famed Nicolas Cage-led Superman, which was called Superman Lives. That was in development, also involving Kevin Smith that was set to film in 1998. Batman vs Superman Asylum and Superman Flyby, both in 2004. The latter, a script by J.J. Abrams, also faltered. Superman officially took a break from the big screen till 2006 for Superman Returns, starring Brandon Ruth, but its planned 2009 sequel would also expire. Superman would be rebooted as Henry Cavill into the DCEU in 2013's Man of Steel, which also had a failed sequel. He reprised the role again in Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice in 2016, and again in Justice League in 2017, and again for Zack Snyder's Justice League in 2021. Multiple animated versions of Superman exist too, far too many for me to list. The most notable being in the Lego movie with Channing Tatum voicing him and in Teen Titans Go to the Movies, voiced by Nicolas Cage, of course. John Krasinski will voice him in the upcoming DC League of Super Pets, as I mentioned. Superman has starred in TV shows, most famously Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, starring Dean Cain and Terry Hatcher from 1993 to 1997. Smallville starring Tom Welling from 2001 to 2011 and most recently in the Arrowverse and in Superman and Lois which started in 2021 starring Tyler Hochin and Elizabeth Tullock. He's been the focal point of several video games including the notorious Superman 64 often cited as one of the worst video games ever made and if you feel quite low like you think I feel quite low today I want to watch something on YouTube to cheer myself up Watch videos of people playing Superman 64 because I swear that game is an absolute joy for how terrible it is. <laughs> I love watching Superman 64 videos. There is also something called the Superman curse, which is mostly due to being typecast in the role, so it's just Kirk Allen, or the fact that Lee Quigley, who played Superman as a baby in this movie, George Reeves and Christopher Reeve all died young and tragically. But more Supermen have lived long, happy lives than those who haven't. The curse does extend to some other people involved in the movies too. But overall, while it's probably worth a mention in this podcast, I don't think it's worth dwelling on. Something that is worth dwelling on, though, is social media thoughts. I like to ask what people think of the movies that I feature. And obviously, I want to know what people think about Superman. So the first people that I'm going to ask are the patrons of this podcast. And I'm going to start with... Obviously, perennial commenter Andy, who says, Well, I'm sure there will be plenty of discussion about how Superman is the first comic book movie that really took its subject matter seriously. I'll instead share a personal story. My grandfather and I never had a close relationship, and when he passed away 10 years ago, I really wanted to find something that I could attribute to him that made me the person that I would become. And it was this movie. Whenever I think about or watch Superman, I can still smell the lingering cigarette smoke that lived in the interior of his car because it was in that car that he took me to see this movie. 
It was just he and I in 1978. All my other cousins were far too young to sit through a two and a half hour movie. This movie really made me appreciate what you could do with a superhero storytelling and increased my love for comic books. And it was in this moment that he and I shared that I will forever be thankful. Crikey, I'm actually getting a little bit emotional reading that. That's a really lovely story, Andy. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it's amazing how we can intrinsically link a movie to an experience. It's like I've always said about movies like Commando, which are not suitable for children. Always remind me of my dad because we used to watch Arnold Schwarzenegger movies together when me and my brother were little. And I really love that you have that memory with your granddad with this movie. That's really, really cool. And again, thank you for sharing. What I'm going to do is I'm now going to share your podcast. I'm going to tell people all about your podcast. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Geek Salad. And it's basically the geek podcast for all of your geeky needs, whether that's movies, music, TV shows, games, literally anything. Andy hosts that podcast with a group of exceptional people who are well worth your ears. So I will put some information in the show notes for Geek Salad. Please have a listen to it. It's a fantastic podcast. We also have a patron comment from Sam who says, It's so easy to look back on it now and pull apart how cheesy it is. From the special effects to some goofy acting, to not being recognised with his glasses on and encapsulated with Superman flying around the world so fast that he turns back time. But to a generation of kids, self-included, it was peak cinema. A true trailblazer. And I really do think this movie is a trailblazer. This movie is superheroes to so many of us who grew up watching stuff like this. And, you know, kids these days are so spoiled with superhero stuff, with the MCU. And with the stuff that DC is bringing out. But for us, this was peak cinema. And honestly, it still amazes me today to see Christopher Reeve fly. Like, I'm still so blown away by that. And I don't know if that's just nostalgia talking or whether that is just the fact that it still looks so incredible. But I completely agree with you, Sam. Sam also has a podcast, by the way. It's called Movie Reviews in 20 Cues. And they basically take a movie and they ask 20 weird and wonderful questions about that movie and it's complete hilarity and you absolutely must listen so i'll also put information in the show notes for movie reviews in 20 cues and the final patron comment comes from brendan who says still a landmark in the genre even after nearly 50 years richard donald superman is a destination a decade's worth of stories and characters anchored by the once in a lifetime casting of christopher reed and a genuine emotional commitment to even the totally outlandish Moving over to Twitter, we're going to start with at Sean Geek Podcast, who said, Life-changing. It upended everything I understood about heroes. Reeve's portrayal was endearing, heroic, and so human. At Mr. London underscore NCB said, I saw Superman at the cinema when I was very young. Amazing visuals. He could fly. Lois Lane was a ballsy love interest, and Reeve is the perfect hero. But I have to say the overlooked highlight of this film are Gene Hackman and Ned Beatty. Superb as evil genius and awful klutz. At Nicolas Kitchen said, The standard bearer, even if it is now somewhat dated. Gene Hackman is solid gold in this. That rewinding time nonsense at the end drags it down though, and I know it was the original Superman 2 ending, and it drags the Donner cut down too. Reeves Kent is still the best. At Launching T Pilot said, You believe a man can fly, and I did with its flawless special effects, or so I thought at the time. Reeve was perfectly cast as Kent and Superman. At Spotlight Pod said, You'd probably enjoy our interview with the director himself, the dearly departed Dick Donner, as we do, of course, discuss this film with him. We re-released our interview in tribute to the great man when he sadly passed away. 
band at Connections Cult who said, Who is this Superman? Well, I guess just listen to the last 50 minutes or so and it'll tell you who Superman is. Moving over to Instagram, at richkid266 said, Best superhero movie ever. With the little whoop whoop hands emoji. And, oh my God, we got a comment on Facebook. Facebook is literally a graveyard for comments. I so very rarely get comments, but I did get a comment on Facebook for Superman, which is miraculous in itself. And that comment is from Andy, and he said, One of the few films where the sequel surpassed the original. It would have been such a bland effort without Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor. He could really turn the comedy dramatic thing on a dime for me. He made the movie. And as always, a huge thank you to everyone who took the time to give some comments on Superman. I actually made a bit of an error, a bit of a schoolgirl error on Saturday when I put the comments thread up, because a couple of hours before, I actually put a poll up about people's favourite Superman. And it turned out that this particular poll was incredibly popular. It got so many votes because it turned out at the time Superman was trending. It ended up getting 261 votes when I asked, who is your favourite big screen Superman and why? And in the end, Christopher Reeve got a mind-blowing 71.6% of the vote, followed by Henry Cavill with 24.9%. Brandon Ruth got 1.9% and then other was 1.5%. And most of those others tended to lean towards George Reeves. But I got like 30 odd comments in that post about who is your favourite big screen Superman. Obviously, because I didn't say I was going to use those comments in the episode, I'm not going to use those comments. However, there were some really brilliant comments in that post on Twitter about why people thought Christopher Reeve was their favourite Superman, why people thought Henry Cavill was their favourite Superman. And it was actually a really interesting thread because people like who they like for whatever reason they like them. And yes, it did lean all towards Christopher Reeve because I do feel like Christopher Reeve is the iconic, but there was a lot of love out there for Henry Cavill, which does not surprise me actually, because as I said, I am not opposed to Henry Cavill at all, but it was actually really nice to get some additional love in that tweet for George Reeves as well. And a couple of people did mention George Reeves specifically, basically I kind of messed up a little bit because I feel like if I'd done that poll maybe the day after, obviously I probably wouldn't have got so many votes on the poll, but maybe the thoughts post would have been a bit more popular. But unfortunately, you know, sometimes that's the way of Twitter. Sometimes tweets get seen and sometimes tweets don't get seen. And obviously people really liked the question, who's your favourite big screen Superman? So that was a really interesting poll and I really wanted to put the results up on here. But as I said, huge thank you to everyone who provided comments. Huge thank you to everyone who voted in that poll as well. All 261 of you. That is probably the biggest poll I've ever done, in all honesty, on Twitter. I think that's just a huge coincidence, personally. But huge thanks to everyone for their comments. I really, really appreciate it for Superman. I can't stress enough how important Superman is. I talked last episode about Jason and the Argonauts, about how important Ray Harryhausen's work was. And Superman feels like that in so many ways, except it's not the work behind the scenes, it's the work on screen. Because Superman leaves a huge legacy. 
The casting of Christopher Reeve showed us we didn't need a huge megastar to embody the Man of Steel, just the right actor. Along with Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, this is seen as the trifecta of the emergence of fan appetites for science fiction in the 1980s. For his part, just FYI, Ilya Salkin denies the connection, stating that each production didn't know the other existed. It just so happened that these huge pop culture behemoths came out around the same time. Superman went into production before the other two did, but due to its extensive filming schedule, it was released after both Star Wars and Close Encounters. But really, for today's audience, this is the movie that made superhero movies outside of the Saturday morning serials. If a movie can make you believe a man can fly, what else can a movie make you believe in? Can it make you believe in vigilante crime fighters, in daywalkers, in radioactive spiders, in mutants, and in anti-heroes, perhaps? Watching this just felt magical. Admittedly, I'd not seen it for a while, but from those little moments, such as Superman subtly flirting with Lois, and let me tell you, fellas, anyone listening who wants to chat up a woman, the... If I had a girlfriend, you'd be the first to know line. It works. It really works. Um, <laughs> let me tell you, it works. Maybe that's just the charm of Christopher Reeve. I don't know. I don't even care that the ending makes little sense because Christopher Reeve put the man and the steel into the man of steel. And really, it's no wonder that newer iterations kind of feel like they've struggled with the weight of the expectation because how can you better? this portrayal that Christopher Reeve gave us. And I'll be the first to admit, I've never been a huge DC fan. I've always been more of a Marvel girl. And let's be honest, I think that shows in the myriad of Marvel episodes of this podcast versus one other DC movie. <laughs> and that's not Birds of Prey, by the way, which I will defend to the hilt because that is a super fun movie. For the one that started it all, it makes so much sense for it to be Superman. And specifically this Superman. I've seen little of its sequels. Not really enough for me to remember, except maybe Richard Pryor in Superman 3, because I don't feel like you could ever forget a Richard Pryor performance. But even without the sequels, this one still feels fresh and special. And yes, some of the movie has aged. I'm not really a huge fan of Margot Kidder's Lois Lane, although I appreciate her chaotic energy probably more than her actual performance. And again, I think I'm just miffed that someone who's clearly so bad at spelling would ever get a high-profile job as a journalist at the biggest paper in Metropolis. But I digress, because the chemistry that she has with Christopher Reeve is fantastic. But what hasn't aged for me is the magic of Superman. And what I love about this movie so much is that his tongue is firmly in its cheek as how it deals with its source material. DC is often criticised for its darkness in its tone, especially when dealing with big characters like Superman and Batman especially Batman. And I really need to give Man of Steel another chance because I really like Henry Cavill and I think he physically embodies a modern Superman, but I don't think he's been treated very well by the material he's been given. I feel like if any movie was going to start superhero cinema, it was going to be this one and we needed something campy and bright and fun, something that wasn't afraid to embrace its comedy side or its comic book roots without going quite as far as Batman did in the 60s. And really, for me, it all comes back to some truly inspired casting and cinema-defining special effects. Um, and I just want to finish this episode by saying, again, Christopher Reeve. I really can't say enough about him, about how perfect he is. But he became paralysed from the neck down in 1995, 
after a horse riding accident. And he would die in 2004 after suffering a cardiac arrest, after receiving antibiotics for sepsis. He went into a coma and he died 18 hours later. This year, 2022, would have been his 70th birthday. And while he did star in many movies before his accident, he's primarily known for Superman. And that's just who he was. He was Superman. And to many, he still is Superman. He is the symbol of optimism, hope, achievement. And maybe that's just why we love him so much. He was a classic all-American boy playing a classic all-American hero. And he had no delusions of grandeur. He was Christopher Reeve playing Superman, playing Clark Kent, playing Superman. And without him, cinema would be so very different today. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Superman. If you want to get involved and you want to help this podcast grow, there are several ways you can do this. So to get involved in this podcast, you can comment on the posts that go up on social media for thoughts on each episode. They usually go up on a Saturday. You can leave a comment on that post, whether that's on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook, and I will read it out in the episode and I will give you a bit of a shout out. It's really that simple. The other things you can do to support this podcast completely free of charge is you can leave a rating or review for this episode or this podcast, wherever you found it, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Spotify, no matter where you found it, if you can rate, please do. You can also retweet or like posts on social media. That also helps a lot as well. And if you want to find me on social media, I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. The easiest way that you can support this podcast is simply by telling a friend or family member about this podcast, especially if they're a fan of Superman. And if you like this episode of Superman, you might also like one of the following episodes slash movies, because let's be honest, not everyone's seen everything, but I highly recommend the following. Episode 17, The Iron Giant, because Superman. And that's all I'm going to say about The Iron Giant, but it's a wonderful movie. It's a Brad Bird animation. It's highly underrated and really deserves all of the love and all of the praise. But The Iron Giant has definite links to Superman. So please check out The Iron Giant and the episode two. Episode 70, Birds of Prey, because it's the only other DC movie that I've done. And hey, it's a lot of fun. I love Harley Quinn. I will do as many podcast episodes on Harley Quinn that need to be done. But that might be a slight spoiler for stuff coming up. But <laughs> oopsie, I love Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. So Birds of Prey is super fun. Keep saying the word super, but it's on trend for this episode. And I also wanted to recommend episode 136, which is The Prince of Egypt. I talked about The Prince of Egypt in this episode. Again, it's an animated movie. It's a movie that maybe not everyone has seen, but it's a beautiful animated movie and it is the story of the Book of Exodus. Now, I am not a religious person. However, I love The Prince of Egypt. It is an absolutely stunning movie. It's a great story and there's a lot of Superman allegories there or maybe this has allegories to the Book of Exodus. I don't know. Either way, check out The Prince of Egypt and let me know what you think of my recommendations. So the next episode, I've hinted at this as much as I can because we're going to be continuing Heroes Through the Decades. So we've been to the 60s with Jason and the Argonauts and we've been to the 70s with Superman. So now we've kind of got to go to the 80s. And another hero who I've mentioned a couple of times in this episode, whose mother's name is also Martha. Why'd you say that name? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> One of the funniest things 
the DC I've ever done is the whole Martha mother thing. Anyway, so Superman and Batman faced off in 2016. But back in the 80s, Batman and Superman hadn't yet met on the big screen. And in 1989, we got Tim Burton's take on the Caped Crusader. And like Superman, Batman can be credited with a lot, especially when it comes to modern superhero cinema. And I'm really excited to be talking about Batman. So please join me next week to talk about Batman. I'm Batman. I'm not Batman, but Batman's coming next week. I told you ways that you can support the show for free. And everyone is welcome to do that because it's free. But if you do want to sign up to support the show financially, then that would be amazing. And you can do so at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And you can join 27 exceptional people who support this show. Huge thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Fern, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian M, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Ian D, Jason and Sunny. You've got me. Who's got you? <laughs> my impressions are terrible. You guys know my impressions are terrible. But anyway... I have a merch choice, verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can buy the mummy-themed t-shirts and you can also support this podcast whilst also looking like an adventurer, an explorer, a treasure seeker or a librarian. If you want to get in touch, you can email me general hellos, feedback or suggestions, verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can pop over to verbaldiorama.com. You can also pop over to filmstories.co.uk. You can check out the magazine, which I write for, and the articles, a couple of which are written by me. And finally, sorry, not sorry for this. You get points if you know the moves. You get extra points if you do the moves while you're listening. One, two, one, two, three, go. What does hope mean to you? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I am the host of the annual live stream for The Cure, a charity live stream event to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute, which researches immunotherapy, training the body's immune system 
to fight all forms of cancer. Their mission, one that I believe in very, very strongly, is a future immune to cancer. And this year for the sixth annual live stream for the cure, I want to emphasize more than anything, hope. Over the past five years, myself and amazing creators and partners from around the world have raised over $50,000 for this amazing cause. And this year, we're looking to add another $20,000 to that total. Please join me May 19th, starting at 9 a.m. Eastern for 45 hours of content over the next three days, as I'm once again joined by amazing creators from around the world to help fight for hope. Learn more or make an early donation today at livestreamforthecure.com.